if you would, this morning in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 5, we continue with our study of the life of David. I hope you are benefiting from the study. It is, I confess to you, one of the high points of the Old Testament for me. I've always loved the life of David, and the more I study it, the more I find. 2 Samuel chapter 5, we're just going to read one verse, you understand, we'll really be covering about three chapters today, but we can't read all of it. I hope you will do so at your leisure when you have opportunity, but we'll just read one verse to get us started this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 12, 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 12. And David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for his people Israel's sake. David perceived that the Lord had established him. To be established, the Hebrew word here means to be settled. He settled him in the kingdom. We have seen... Saul and his sons slain on Mount Geboa. We have seen civil war erupt between the servants, soldiers of David, and those who were still loyal to Saul. Saul's remaining son, Ishbosheth, has been anointed king by Abner, commander in chief of Saul's army. And there is civil war that breaks out. We also saw how Abner had a falling out with Ishbosheth over a woman and uh, decided to defect over to David's side. David extended the hand of peace to Abner, welcomed him to come, and Abner said, I'll go and I'll bring all Israel underneath your rule. But that was not to be, as Joab learns of the fact that his enemy Abner has desired to defect, he calls Abner aside privately and stabs him in the back under the fifth rib, assassinates him. We see that David, much to his chagrin, is without Abner. Uh, Abner's defection and death is a great blow, as you can well imagine, to Ishbosheth. The handwriting is on the wall that his kingdom, his days are very limited, and indeed, as he is taking a map one afternoon, two of his captains come into his quarter and stab him under the fifth rib. I don't know how they could always hit that that spot under the fifth rib. You'll see that I don't know how many times in the story of David. But as he's sleeping, they slay him on his bed, they behead him, and these two captains ride down to where David is, bringing Ishbosheth's head in their hands, thinking they're going to win David's favor and appreciation. Bad move. David said, when one brought me tidings of Saul's death, thinking I would reward him, I had him slain. How much more so when wicked men kill a righteous man lying on his bed, and he has his men fall upon these fellows and kill them. But notice that what has happened is that God, slowly but surely, has removed all opposition to the throne of David. David has already has moved his headquarters from the Philistine city of Ziklag up into the edge of the tribe of Judah's territory into the city of Hebron. And there he is reigning as king over the territory of Judah only. But now we find, and you can see in chapter 5 and verse 1, then came all the tribes of Israel unto Hebron to speak to David and spoke, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, thou wast he who led us out and brought us in Israel. And the Lord said to thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be a captain over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. This is the third time David has been anointed. Once, when the prophet Samuel came and found him when he was just a young boy watching Jesse, his father's sheep, there on the hillsides around Bethlehem. Again, he has been anointed king when he comes to Hebron and reigns over Judah. Now he is officially anointed the king of Israel. You'll notice in verse 5, 
It mentions in verse 4 that he was 30 years old when he began to reign. He's going to reign for a period of 40 years. Seven years of that he will reign in Hebron over that area of Judah. And then 33 years he will reign over the entire nation of Israel. The reason the life of David is so interesting is because there is a clear parallel between what God is doing with David and what he will do with David's greater son, Jesus, the Messiah. The earthly kingdom of Israel portrays the heavenly kingdom of God. The earthly people of Israel. Somebody, Steve or Tim, somebody already made mention this morning. The earthly people of Israel, in a physical sense, portray the spiritual Israel of God, the true people of God. The earthly Jerusalem. Do you realize there's two Jerusalems? It's what Paul said in his Galatian epistle. The Jerusalem that's below, the one that was down on earth, the one that's over there today in Palestine. And the Jerusalem that is above, the heavenly one, the the one below, portrays and foreshadows the one that is above. There's two temples, or there was in that day. There was this earthly temple, but the book of Revelation, the book of Hebrews, speaks of a heavenly temple. In fact, it says that Moses made the earthly tabernacle after the pattern of the heavenly one. The heavenly one was already in existence. He just copied it and made an earthly replica of the heavenly. In the same sense, my friend, there was an earthly throne of David. A throne from which David ruled and reigned over God's people, Israel. That throne portrays and foreshadows another throne. The real throne. The real McCoy. The one from which God's king not David, but David's son, the Messiah, will reign over the kingdom of God and over God's people. What we're going to see this morning is just how God went about establishing David as king over Israel. And what we're going to notice is that there are many parallels between the way God did it in David's day and the way he does it when the Messiah, his son, comes upon the scene. I hope that you have already picked up, certainly from the hymns we've sung this morning, and Steve made reference earlier, that, you know, there's not many hymns that deal with the ascension of Christ to the throne. Very few, and I think that's sad, and I think it is indicative of the state of things in our theological understanding of this modern age. Because, you see, most people, most Christian people, do not think of Christ as reigning on the throne of David, exercising divine rule and power and might right now. They're waiting on him to come back and rule and reign. My friend, you're too late. He's already on the throne. That is the language of the apostles in the book of Acts. Peter says to that crowd that crucified Jesus, God has raised him on the dead. He has raised him to his right hand. He has made him Lord and Savior. You say, oh, I need to make Christ Lord of my life. Too late. God beats you to it. He has set him on the throne. He has given him all power in heaven and earth. You either bow or burn. How did David become established in his kingdom? How did he do it? How did God put him on that throne? The striking thing about David's ascension to the throne is that it just sort of happened. You notice that? How do people normally get on the thrones of the nations? How do, how do people get to the presidency? Do they be it being not Mr. Nice Guy, you know, and meek? And humble or lowly, or do they go out and they, we, we're seeing the campaign in the midst of all of that, the candidates going all over the country, as we say, tooting their horns, hoping that they can have people support them and advance them with their vote to the White House. Most of the time, the kings, till our nation, this noble experiment it was called back a couple of centuries ago, the kings that assumed the thrones were those who by force conquered a people. They weren't on the throne by popular assent or because people had voted for them. They were on the throne because their army 
forcibly took seized territory. It's typically how the kings of the earth have advanced themselves to the thrones of this earth. But we have watched as David has very meekly submitted himself, though he knows that it is God's purpose that he be king. Yet he has not forcibly sought it. He has not forced himself upon the people. It's as if he has simply meekly sat by and God in his way, in his time, has slowly but surely advanced David from living in a hole in the ground in the cave of Abdullam and has eventually set him on the throne of all Israel. God has advanced him to the throne. I hope you realize how unusual that is. The book of Daniel is full of very mysterious prophecies, and I certainly don't want to stir up that can of hornets this morning <laughs> for us to get in, in somehow immersed in that kind of a discussion. But I would say there are two very important features in the book of Daniel concerning the kingdoms of this earth, the way they are portrayed. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel has a vision. Actually, it's Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and uh, it's a rather unusual dream. He sees this man made out of metal, and he has a head of gold, he has a chest of silver, he has a midsection of brass, and then legs of iron in his feet, iron mixed with clay. And uh, he can't quite figure this out. And Daniel comes and interprets the vision for him. And he says, these are representative of kings. Kingdoms, actually, that are going to be coming on the earth. You, you Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar was the king over the greatest empire on earth at that time, the kingdom of Babylon. You are the head of gold. After you, there'll come another kingdom inferior to you as far as its glory. That's the Persian Empire. And then another, the Greek Empire. And lastly, that one with the iron legs and so forth, which apparently is making reference to the Roman Empire. In other words, these are sequences of the kingdoms that will be upon earth. But what is quite interesting is that this is an image of a man. The kingdoms of this earth are idolatrous kingdoms. You get the picture? You remember Nebuchadnezzar had that image that was some 60 cubits tall, that when this image came along, they tooted the horn, and everybody's supposed to bow down and worship it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to do so and got thrown in the fiery furnace. You remember the story. It's as if what Nebuchadnezzar is having is an image. He's seeing that image that he had previously uh, caused men to bow down and worship, and he's seeing that that's the way the kingdoms of this world work. You have an image of a man you have to fashion. It's like fashioning an idol. But the dream went on that he saw a stone cut out of a mountain without hands. I'm going to explain this in a minute. A stone cut out of a mountain without hands, and it dashed into pieces that image of that man, that idol. The stone cut out of a mountain without hands represents the kingdom that God would give to his son. And when we say that it was cut out without hands, it simply means man didn't do it. You remember how you used to get, when I was a kid, you used to get the little toys and say, made in Japan? That meant it's going to fall apart in five minutes. Today it means quality. Back then it meant junk. But you know, you still get things today. Made in Mexico. Made in the USA. All of man's works and the kingdoms on this earth have this in common. They are man-made. They are of man. This kingdom is unique in that it is that which God does. It is a kingdom made without hands, without man's help, without man's assistance. This is God empowering his son to sit on his throne. We see roughly the same thing a little later in Daniel in the seventh chapter. You see beasts, this time four beasts. Same four kingdoms seen under another image. But the beast rise up out of the sea. The sea sort of representing in prophecy mankind, the people of this earth. And these beasts rise up out of the sea. And you understand what's going on. This is representing again the kingdoms of this earth. They're all rising up out of mankind. A scranning, a grabbing, seizing power, dominating They're all voracious. Notice these animals of lion, 
bears, so forth. They're voracious animals. But then he says, I saw another vision. I saw one like the Son of Man come nigh the throne of the Ancient of Days. And there was given unto him a kingdom that would never end. A kingdom that would supplant all these other kingdoms. You get the picture? The kingdoms of this earth rise up. That kingdom comes down. This one springs up from below. That one comes down from above. This one's man's doing. That one's God's doing. Now, there's the contrast, and I hope you can see it in the eschatological language of, of the book of Daniel, but it's a contrast that is certainly picked up by Jesus in the New Testament when he will say to the Pharisees, you're from beneath. I'm from above. I've come down from the Father. Indeed, as we've seen, heaven came down. Well, it did in the appearance of Jesus Christ. Notice that David does not self seek the kingdom. He is not seizing it. Rather, he inherits the kingdom. You know the verse, the meek shall inherit the earth? What does it mean? It means that they're not out here grabbing for all the gusto. You know, you only go around once in life. You've got to grab for all. They're not grabbing. They're not seizing. But they're going to get it in the end. And it will be given to them as a gift, as an inheritance, just as the kingdom was given to David. He humbles himself before his God. He's lowly. He submits himself to his God in every detail. Does that remind you of someone? Does it not remind you of the king that God sent into this world? Look at him as he rides into Jerusalem to present himself as king of Israel. Is he riding into town on a great big white war horse? I mean, that's how you and I would do it. That's how the conquerors of this earth, the kings and the rulers, did it. No, he's riding into town on a little donkey. Down in Mexico, you see those grown men riding on those little burros. And it's sort of a... Billy Joe, you know what I'm talking about. Their, their legs almost drag the ground. This is not even a full-grown donkey. It's the coat, the foal of a donkey. This is the king. Behold, your king, says Isaiah, cometh unto thee, meek, lowly, riding on the foal of an ass. Do you understand why they didn't want this fella as their king? He didn't look like any other king they'd ever seen. He didn't come seizing, dominating. He came serving he came giving, not taking and seizing. He came in lowliness and in meekness. Something strange going on here. That's how God would establish His Son in the kingdom. His Son's going to get it. He's going to get it as His inheritance, not by seizing it. And then secondly, David was established in the kingdom by being established in God's appointed place. We've seen that he's established in the power and purpose of God. Now we're going to see that he is established in the place that God has ordained. You see, throughout the wilderness wanderings of Israel, you'll find verses scattered through the law that although they're right now moving from place to place, and they're taking the tabernacle and they're carrying it up on their shoulders from place to place, location to location, God says the day's going to come that I'm going to pick one place. And there I'm going to meet with you. There is where I'll hear your prayers. There is where I'll accept your sacrifices. When we get into the land, I'm going to choose one place, and that's where I'm going to meet with you. Shortly after David assumes, almost concurrent apparently from the way these uh, discourses are placed in Scripture, concurrently with his assuming rule over all Israel, we'll find that David moves, relocates his throne from Hebron, there in Judah, to another location. That location was known in David's day by the, by the name of Jebus. J-E-B-U-S. Jebus. It's an ancient city. 
I'd been writing in the messenger on the last five chapters of the book of Judges. And you remember the story of the Levite and his concubine? They left her dad's place real late in the day and got a late start. And they were going to try to find a place to lodge on the way home that night. And they started to turn aside into this city of Jebus. And the Levite said, "Uh uh-uh, let's don't go in there. I don't know about that place. Let's go on down the road here. Let's see if we can get to Gabeah or Ramah. Let's go to one of these other places where there's Israelites, where there's our people there. Let's, let, I'm not sure sure about this place. Well, he made a big mistake, as you remember. But the reason that he passed by Jebus was that it was not an Israelite city. It was a Canaanite city. Now, it may surprise you to learn that this is some 400 years after the time of Joshua and the generation that conquered Israel, that there are still pockets of Canaanites who have never been conquered living in the land of Israel. Jebus was one such a place, and the Jebusites, people that lived in that city, the reason it had not been conquered was because of its situation. There was this high ridge and this rocky outcropping that came out from the ridge, a spur off of that mountain. And it had sharp ravines on, or sharp slopes on three of the sides. So you see, you only had to really defend the one side coming down from the ridge, and you had a natural defense on the other three sides. They built a stronghold there, a hole. They built a fort, we would call it. And these Jebusites had done very well, apparently, for themselves for some four centuries, living there in the land of Israel, never had been conquered. And then David and his men come by one day, and they decide they're going to take this place. Well, here are these Jebusites. Now, for four centuries, they've been trying to take their fort, and they hadn't been able to, and so they're sort of hauling down, nah, 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 nah. you can't get us. In fact, they say, you'll see it here in Second Samuel 5, in verse uh, 6, they say, except thou take away the lame and the blind, uh, thou shalt not come in here. In other words, we could have lame men and blind men defending this city, and you couldn't get in here. And I, I love this last little phrase there of verse 6. It says, thinking David cannot come in hither. In other words, you say, nah, 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 you can't get me when you think he can't get you. And so they say, yeah, we could have the lame and the blind defend this place, and you couldn't get in, thinking they could do it. But David surveys the situation, and he says to his men, whoever can get up there first and take this city, be my commander-in-chief. Be commander over my army. Whoever gets up there first. So he gives them a little incentive here, a little reward. Well, guess who gets up there first? You don't read it here, but over in the parallel account in 1 Chronicles, you'll find it was none other than good old Joab, the stabber in the back, the vicious warrior. Joab is the one who gets up there first and, in fact, takes the city, and he becomes the commander of David's army. Well, you and I don't know this spot by the name Jebus or its inhabitants, the Jebusites. We know it by another name, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the spot where centuries, centuries earlier, Abraham, returning from the battle with the kings, met a priest coming down from that place by the name of Melchizedek and pays tithes to him, recognizing this priest as the priest of the Most High God. The same spot, interestingly enough, where God said, I want you to take your son, your only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, I want you to take him up to the mountains of Moriah, and I want you to offer him there as a burnt offering. You know the story of how he went and almost slew his son before God stopped him and provided a lamb, a substitute, to die in his place. That ridge I was telling you about, that's none other than Mount Moriah. You know, today, there's a building in that spot. It's called the Dome of the Rock. It's an Islamic mosque. It's on the spot where the temple was to be built. Do you know why the Muslims hold that? Revere it as the second most holy place in their religion, second only to Mecca? is because that's the spot that Abraham offered up in their religion, Ishmael, not Isaac. But that's where that event took place. 
there on that place, that spot. It was called that outcropping, that hill that came out from the ridge, was called by the name of Zion. And so you'll see that David builds his city, makes it his residence. Hiram, his friend over in the land of Tyre, sends him cedar to build him a palace, probably a shack compared to what you and I live in, but nevertheless a palace in that day out of, built out of cedar wood on top of that little knob of that hill called Zion. You see what's happening? God is moving the throne of David to this place, to this spot. And it will not just be David's throne that is removed there, but you'll find that David now sends for the Ark of the Covenant. It's been up at a place called Baal Judah. I'm going to tell you more about that next week, a remarkable story concerning the worship of God that went on surrounding the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem. I think perhaps something you've never thought of before. I'll just leave you dangle that little morsel out there for you so you'll come back next week. But during this time, David calls for the Ark to be brought down from Baal Judah, up in the hill country of Judah, into the city where he himself will dwell. You see, what's happening is that all the elements of the centrality of the worship of Jehovah is being brought together at this one place. It'll be that spot where God will hear their prayers. It'll be this place where the king dwells, that God will be propitiated by their sacrifices. It will be there that you will come into the presence of God. Three times a year, the law required for an Israelite male to go up and appear before God. That meant they took a trip. They went up to Jerusalem and they stood in the temple before their God. It would be in that place that God would meet with His people and would be, would be propitious, to them, merciful towards them because of sacrifice for their sins and where God would hear their prayers. Well, you say, let's all take a trip to the Holy Land. Let's go to Jerusalem if that's the place where God will meet with us. May I remind you that there is the earthly Jerusalem. There's an earthly mountain called Zion But according to the New Testament, there's another city, there's another mountain called Zion. Would you read Hebrews, the 12th chapter? Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12 in verse 22 is the second half of the contrast. The writer has been saying, you're not, he's saying you don't come to this mountain, you come to this mountain. You don't go to this mountain, back in verse 18, the one that burned, the one that quaked, the one that put a band around and said if you get close to it, you've got to be stoned to death. Do you understand what mountain he's talking about? That's Mount Sinai. We don't go to Mount Sinai in verses 18 through 21, verse 22, but ye are come unto Mount Zion. In other words, there is a mountain. You hear of a mountaintop experience? Everybody thinks they're closer to God on the mountaintop? Well, there is a mountain that we're to go to. But my friend, it's not down here on earth. Year come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. In other words, the gospel does not drive you back to Mount Sinai. The gospel points you up to Mount Zion, not the one on earth, not that one over in the Middle East where all the trouble is today. It points you to a heavenly Mount Zion, a heavenly city of Jerusalem where Christ is. We almost have a superstitiousness about us, about Israel, about Jerusalem. You know, we've almost made a fetish out of it. The New Testament is very plain and very clear. It's not that one. It's that one that you need to be headed at. Have your attention focused upon. And notice that Christ is already dwelling there in Jerusalem. And then thirdly, it is not only that God precious promises. Y'all hot? Is it warm? Y'all... Yeah, I'm, I'm the only one with a coat on, so I guess the rest of you, if that's the y'all can take y'all's off too, but don't guess so. I'm, I'm warm. All right? 
The third, the third inning. Beverly, we're closer to the end here. God has given to David and established David with some amazing promises. Of all the things I'm going to say to you this morning, this is the most important. It's not just that God put him there with his power, not just that he put him there in this place, but God has established David because he's sworn an oath to David. My lands, when God speaks, he cannot lie, says Paul. Y'all listen. But, oh man, when God swears, when he swears an oath, when he says, surely, that's what he said to Abraham, it's not just I'm going to bless you, but surely, I swear it, I'll bless you. He's going to swear an oath to David. David, once he gets in Jerusalem, he's now living in a nice house. Nice, at least in that day and time. Sure, he'd have given half his kingdom for indoor plumbing. But uh, the Ark of the Covenant, as we're going to learn, is placed in a tent. Curtains surrounding it. And David begins to be troubled. He says, you know, here I am, living over here in a nice home of permanent structure, and God, his presence, represented by the Ark, is out here in a tent. And he says to Nathan the prophet, I'm going to build a house for God. I'm going to build a structure like I live in for that ark. Nathan says, sounds like a pretty good deal to me. But in the middle of the night, God speaks to Nathan. Look in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 4. 2 Samuel 7, verse 4. He came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus saith the Lord, Shalt thou build me a house for me? To dwell in. Isaiah the prophet had once said, God spoke through him and said, Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. In other words, my seat is in the heavens, I rest my feet on the earth. Now let's see you build me a house. How are you going to build a house for a God like that? Well, he says, Are you going to build me a house for me to dwell in? He says, Verse 6 Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought out. The children of Israel out of Egypt, even unto this day, but have walked in a tent, in a tabernacle. He goes on to say, I hadn't been in that situation, always been in tents. I'd have never said anything to anybody about them building me a house. Okay? Down in verse 12. But he says, I tell you what. Uh, verse 11. And since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee a house. You've told me that you want to make a house for me. I'm telling you, I'm going to make you a house. Well, what's he mean? Read on, verse 12. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thine own bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. You see, a house represented a permanent structure, not something that was temporary, not something that was an uncertain dwelling place. And David says, I want to build you a house, God. And God says, you're not going to do it. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to make of you a house. What does he mean? I will make your kingdom and your throne to be everlasting. Someone of your seed I'm going to put on that throne forever and ever. Now, I know some of you are saying, well, you know, obviously this is talking about Solomon. David's son, who was born, who indeed built a temple, a permanent structure in the place of that tent, that tabernacle that they had carried around the wilderness. But my friend, the wording won't allow that. King Solomon's kingdom was a majestic kingdom. He reigned over Israel at its zenith. And yet Solomon died, buried, 
his throne, his kingdom, one forever and ever. In fact, there came a time after the Babylonian captivity that there was no more king to reign in Jerusalem. Oh, they had governors come back under the auspices of Persian kings. But for all practical intents and purposes, there was no more kingdom. There were no more kings after old Jeconiah to reign on the throne of David. Well, then how is this to be fulfilled? Behold, there shall this root come out of Jesse's branch. This sprout. After the tree of Jesse has been cut down, there'll be this shoot, the netzer, the branch. That's why that name is applied to the Messiah. There'll be a branch come out of the stump of Jesse. You ever cut down a tree and then had a shoot come up alongside it of the old tree? Jesse, his house has been cut down. But the branch, the nectar, will sprout up. And you say, well, surely when it talks about him building God a house, he's talking about the temple that God, that Solomon built for God. Uh-uh. He's talking about something that the branch is going to build. Do you realize that the Messiah came into this world and the work that he is presently engaged in is building a temple. I want to take you to a prophecy in Zechariah. One of my favorite prophecies. You have to read it for yourself. We don't have time. The refugees have come back from Babylon. They're just a meager bunch, a small group of the original Israelites that were destroyed. They've come back. They don't have much money. They're trying to rebuild the temple, and they're doing the best they can, but they don't have any resources. Just a bunch of poor folks trying to do their best. Joshua, who is the high priest, is taken by Zechariah into a house, and they set him down in a chair. And God says to Zechariah, put crowns on his head. Now, can you imagine? Here's a priest sitting there in a chair with crowns on his head. And Zechariah is told by God, Behold the man whose name is the branch. You want to see what the branch is going to look like? Let's take a look. He will be a priest sitting on his throne. Throughout the Old Testament age, the office of king and the office of priest is kept strictly separate. Saul, as we have seen, got himself in a heap of trouble by intruding into the priest's offering office, offering sacrifices that Samuel the priest was to offer. Uzziah the king got leprosy because he intruded into the priest's office. But the Messiah, the branch, when he comes, he's going to be a priest reigning on his throne. And he goes on to say, and he will build the temple of the Lord. He'll be a temple builder. But my friend, he's not talking about some earthly structure. He's not talking about him coming back to a hill over in the Middle East and building a structure. Peter tells you the nature of that temple. We as lively stones, you and I, are rocks in that temple. Bricks that Christ is placing on the foundation, himself being the chief cornerstone, the apostles and prophets, the foundation rocks. And we, you and I, being placed in that building, a spiritual building, a spiritual temple, says Peter, a place where God will dwell in the midst of His people. That's the work that the Messiah came to do. Oh, I wish we had time this morning to run through some of the Psalms. Psalms 2, for instance, where David speaks of the heathen raging and conspiring against his rule, and yet God declaring the decree, yet have I set my son my king on the holy hill of Zion. I have put him there in spite of the raging of the heathen, in spite of all the opposition. Do you realize that same passage is quoted by the early church and applied to Christ in the book of Acts? They say, in spite of all the opposition to the rule and reign of the Messiah, why you had Pilate and the Gentiles, you had old King Herod, you had the leaders of the Jews themselves. They say, politics makes strange bedfellows. The crucifixion of Christ made strange bedfellows. They all got in bed together. These people who literally couldn't stand one another. The Romans, the Jews, King Herod all got in cahoots to do one thing. To put the Son of God on a cross and say, we don't want this guy. We will not have him to reign over us. 
The leaders of the nation of Israel stood out there and screamed their heads off, crucifying. We will have no king but Caesar. And in that statement, they renounced their messianic hope. If this is the king that God sends us, we'd rather have Caesar. And the early church quotes this passage out of Psalm 2 and says, The heathen, the kings of the earth, have all assembled themselves against your holy child, Jesus. They've all conspired. The Romans, the Jews, King Herod, they've all come together to one end, and that is to reject your king. But in spite of them, you have placed your king on the holy hill of Zion. In spite of their rage, in spite of their opposition, you have set your king on the hill. My friend, this is the heart of the gospel. Behold, the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, says Isaiah. Glad I hear the feet, he says, coming over the hill. What is the proclamation? Thy God reigneth. My friend, if you are a Christian this morning, your king is not trying to reign. He's not hoping you'll let him reign. He is seated on the throne of all power in the heavens, and he is reigning at the right hand of God the Father. He rules. He reigns. He rules, says Psalm 110, in the midst of his enemies, until they all be put under his feet. I hope that you catch a little bit, a glimpse of the portrait of the cosmology of this New Testament age. It is not poor little Jesus. Don't you feel sorry for him? Look at him dying and hurting. Won't you pity him? The cosmology of the New Testament is that there is a king once one who once had hung on a cross, crowned with thorns, now reigning in the heavens with the crown of God upon his head. And the question, my friend, is not so much what are you going to do with him. The question is what is he going to do with you. He is not in your hands to do with as you please. You are in his hands. And he will one day, says Paul to the Athenians on Mars Hill, come back. He's going to judge this world. Your destiny is in his hands. It's not the other way around. Oh, Psalm 2. God, after he has said, in spite of the opposition, I've put my king on the holy hill of Zion. In that psalm, he turns to the king and he says, now ask of me. Ask. You want a coronation present? I've crowned you. You're my son. I've set you on my throne. I've given you all my power. You want a present? Would you like a coronation gift? Ask of me. Just ask. And I will give thee the heathen for your inheritance. You want a people? Just ask. And I'll give them to you. Psalm 110, David says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit on my right hand till I make all your enemies your footstool. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. Christ didn't go to a cross like a man on a gambling trip to Las Vegas. Just going to do his best. Roll the dice and hope something good happens. He went there and he fulfilled the purpose, the work that God intended for him to fulfill. And now he reigns in the heavens. And it's sort of like what happened in David's day. You remember the story. There he was at his lowest point, there in a cave, a hole in the ground, hiding out from Saul, a few handful of men. And suddenly what began to happen? Men began to come to him. Oh, they didn't have much choice. Some of them, it says they were in distress. Man, there's in a, between a rock and a hard place. They can see the handwriting on the wall. Some were in debt. Had no other hope. 
But they began to come to David. You can read in First Chronicles how a whole chapter is devoted that while he was at Adullam, these came to him. When he was at Ziklag, these came to him. And they would come like a mesa. He gives a quote, a mesa. It says, the Spirit came upon him and says, we're yours, David. We believe that God is going to put you on the throne. You're God's man. We believe that and we've come. When he went down to rescue the captives of Ziklag, others come to him. At Mount Geboah, there before the battle, when he had to turn back, others come to him. Till the Chronicles said it was like a mighty host, like the host of God. Do you understand what's happening in this New Testament age? There's people constantly coming to bow the knee to King Jesus, to embrace the King that God has placed. On his holy hill of Zion. There was a day when about a nine-year-old boy came. You say, why'd you come? I don't know. I'd say it's like this. Something just got a hold of me. <laughs> it's just like something happened and I couldn't do anything else but say, I surrender. I give up. I bow. And they've been coming for 2,000 years, and they're still coming. Ask of me, and I'll give you the heathen for your inheritance. He's not going to go home. He's not going to sit on that throne with no presence. They're still coming today. Oh, I pray that you might just catch a glimpse of the glory of all of this. The certainty of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, I know there's some of you sitting out here today and some of you all looking around and says, man, it sure doesn't seem to me like Christ is reigning. Boy, it looks like to me the devil's having it his way. Wickedness increasing. Wicked men on the rise. What do you mean Christ is reigning? Jesus told a story to his disciples. He says, you know, the kingdom of heaven is like a man went away into a far country to receive a kingdom. And he left his servants there and said, I want you to occupy till I come. You be busy with my work till I get back. So he left. But it says the citizens of that country, they said, we will not have this man to reign over us. We won't have it. But said he went away and he got that kingdom. And then he came back. And he says... Those citizens who said they would not have me reign over them, bring them here and slay them. Oh, it doesn't look like Christ is on the throne. It looks like business as normal. But let me assure you that the testimony of the entire New Testament is that God's Son is reigning at His right hand. He's gone away and He's received a kingdom. He's going to come one day and He will reward His servants and He will judge His enemies. I'm going to leave you this morning with a little bit of advice. It's the same advice Psalm 2 gives. It ends with this little word of admonition. Ye kings of the earth, kiss the Son, lest He be angry. And ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. My advice, kiss him. Bow down. Kiss those feet. The nail prints in those feet. Bow down to the rule and reign of your lawful king. It's bow or burn. Which will it be? Let us bow. Our Father, thank You for what You have done for us when You raised Your Son to the throne. Thank You that it is in that act that the sure mercies of David are bestowed upon us. Oh, what a king and what a kingdom. So unique, so opposite the kingdoms of this world and its rulers. For here was one who came and meekly submitted himself to your will, who came serving, who came giving, 
who was obedient even to the death of the cross. And Father, you have exalted him. He didn't exalt himself. You have exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Father, we gladly, we who know him, we who have fallen in love with this king, we gladly bow the knee before the sovereign of our soul, the captain of our salvation, the king of our heart. But, oh, Father, if there's those here today who resist, who continue to despise his rule, who would say in their heart of hearts, I will not have this man to rule over me. May they tremble at the prospects of that day when every knee shall bow, whether in your wondrous, gracious work of salvation or in that day of awful judgment. Father, we will bow the knee. We will confess him king. It's not if, it's just when. May it be now, while it is called today, may we come and embrace Him as the Sovereign of our soul. May You encourage us today with the prospects of the certainty of His kingdom. Father, it seems to us as if wickedness is in the rise and the ascension. Your people are so few, our resources so small. Encourage us in the thought that in spite of it all, all his enemies shall be made his footstool. He shall indeed reign, Lord of lords and King of kings. Thank you. Teach us. Speak to our hearts according to our need. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.